This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a moment, we'll hear from John Tamney. Tamney gives a perspective that jobs are going to get better and better, and that when Sunday night rolls around, you're not going to dread Monday, you're going to welcome it. But first, what's ahead this week? Well, in the really civilized world, the focus is going to be on baseball. Baseball trading is going to pick up now as teams that know they're not going to be in contention look to offload high-priced players to get prospects for the future. Contenders are going to be doing the opposite, trying to get players now to get them over the top in the World Series this fall. So plenty of speculation on trades that are going to take place or not take place. Another thing, Hong Kong protests. They're heating up again. Even though Beijing and Hong Kong government backed off from trying to put that bill through to allow extradition of people from Hong Kong to the mainland to stand trial, protesters now want more firm guarantees on democracy. They want pro-Democrat members of the legislature being allowed to take their seats. They want more direct democracy in the selection of the city executive. How these protests are going to play out, no one knows but they're serious and the world will be watching. We have here a John Tamney, who is political economy editor of Forbes.com. He's editor of Real Clear Markets, director of Center for Economic Freedom, and a lot of other things besides. Uh, John, good to have you with us. Hey, Steve, thanks very much for having me on. And you've got a book out, the End of Work. Now, when people hear that title before the uh, add-on, uh, they think uh, robots are going to be taking over the world, they're going to become smarter than we are, and uh, we're just going to be sitting on couches waiting for our uh, uh, minimum income from uh, somebody. So why, why, why don't we start first, uh, just, just clear up this idea that uh, we're all going to be made redundant because robots are going to be smarter than we are, and uh, there's going to be nothing left for us to do. They're going to be driving trucks and uh, writing our columns and everything else. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why I entitled the book "The End of Laziness" to clear up any of these mis misperceptions. But um, but p publishers can uh, be very fickle about these things. But yes, without a doubt, um, I argue in the end of work that in fact robots will be the greatest job creators in history. Uh, they won't uh, put us out of work as much as they'll cause us to fall in love with work. Um, let's never forget that it used to be that all of us just about had to work six days a week from dawn to dusk on a farm. Didn't matter whether we loved it or hated it, that's just what you had to do. All human effort was directed toward the creation of food. And then these robots came along like fertilizer and the, and the tractor, and they didn't put us into bread lines or out of work. They just finally freed us up to cure diseases and create the automobile, the airplane, to become entertainers, become columnists, become teachers, coaches. And so I'm making the case that the more we automate away the work of the past, more and more of us will get to get up and do something that is really associated with our unique skills and our unique intelligence such that we're going to fall in love with work. So uh, make the distinction between uh, work and drudgery. Well, drudgery would be me having to every single day get up at dawn 
and go plant uh, seeds so that I could have tomatoes and corn and milk cows so that, so that I could have milk and kill cows so that I could have steak. <laughs> so that's drudgery. It's when you're doing what you have to do, work that you have to do just to get by, just to survive. Um, what I'm describing is a world that's more and more with us in which we've automated away so much of what of life's necessities like food like air conditioning like water like like everything that we that we really that we already need and this allows us to become video game players and video game coaches and it allows us to become influencers on the internet whereby we're paid because we're good at putting on makeup and explaining it to people it allows us to become professional shoppers allows us to become sommeliers chefs all because we've automated away the work that none of us really wanted to do in the first place. So make the case that this uh, plethora, this abundance of new occupations, which we'll come to in a moment, uh, it's prosperity is a necessity for it. Prosperity creates opportunity. Uh, without question, if you don't have prosperity, you cannot have this because what is prosperity? It's just a sign of rising productivity. With us much more prosperous, with us much wealthier, we discover new wants and needs. And this speaks to the importance of the super rich. They uniquely buy the goods and services that lead to much more productivity and more prosperity. Let's not forget that the first computer cost $1.3 million. The first laser printer cost $17,000. The first air conditioner cost $50,000. Um, the first mobile phone cost $4,000. And so the rich reveal a market need that then entrepreneurs get rich uh, mass producing. But think how much slower of an economy we'd have. See much, think how much poorer we'd be without computers, without laser printers, without mobile, mobile phones, without the air conditioner. And so with that, with that taken care of and with prosperity having been created, the demand for other things, for life's finer things grows. Some say that a prosperous society, commercial society, is Philistine, anti-anti-cultural. You make the case for the opposite. With prosperity, you get more symphony orchestras. Walk us through that, that it's good for culture. If you don't have prosperity, that means that people are working every day just to survive. They not, not only is there not money to promote the arts, but people don't have the time to sit back and enjoy the arts. And so if you go back to the early part of the 20th century, as I talk about in, in the book, there were orchestras, but this was a part-time job for people. If you loved the oboe or violin, you might be able to get into an orchestra, but you had to do something else to pay the bills. And then we had the Industrial Revolution in the US. People, Lots of people got enormously rich and they, along with their heirs, gave a lot of money to promote the arts. And nowadays, you still have orchestras, but people do it full time. Anything that's cultural has to be preceded, though, by people with the funds willing to invest in these new things. But also, there have to be people willing to watch them. And so the pros without prosperity, there's no time to enjoy the finer things in life. And the prosperity comes, not to uh, be simplistic about it, but prosperity comes through uh, creation and application of capital. Without question, look at what happens during periods of a booming stock market and a booming economy. The funds for th cultural 
necessities like the like orchestras and museums skyrockets. There's a rule of thumb that two percent of GDP is annually directed in the U.S. toward charity, toward cultural pursuits. And so, the bigger the economy, the more money being directed uh, to to these these wonderful cultural pursuits. And so, and let let's also add that when the stock market is rising. The amount of money that's flowing towards symphonies and orchestras and museums skyrockets. And so you can't have one without the other. To hate prosperity, to hate a rising stock market is to hate culture. It's to want to see it suffocated simply because these can't make it on their own. They need generous donors to actually exist. Why is there so much hostility on the part of uh, those of us who write, uh, book writers, movie makers, why is commerce looked down upon instead of seen for as the great opportunity maker? My sense is it's someone look, somewhat looked down upon is in that writers traditionally were some of the smarter people in their class at, in high school, college, and beyond. And then they find out that just because you're smart, that doesn't necessarily have remunerative applications in the way that they look at people that they went to school with who weren't particularly smart, but were very ambitious, had an energy energy for something. And so very often they have to watch people who weren't as book smart as they were make a lot more money than they did. So I, I think that's a factor. Uh, I think people generally love prosperity. Um, I think we tend to hear the negatives about it when the economy is weak, the rich get a bullseye put on their back. So let's go to the uh, new occupations that couldn't exist without prosperity or the uh, radical change in uh, traditional occupations. Uh, we have a lot of golfers in the world still, even though the sport's under pressure. Uh, the caddy once just schlepped the bags around and pulled out your iron. Today, you say he's virtually like a jockey for the Kentucky Derby and gets 10% of the winnings. Uh, a golfer can't exist, a professional, without a superb caddy. Um, it used to be that caddies basically carried the bag for rich people, and they had kind of funny names because they were known more for their ability to, to uh, consume alcohol than for being true strategists on the course. And then golf grew in popularity because of people like Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Tom Watson. Tiger Woods most famously utterly transformed the sport. One man made golf one of the most lucrative sports on earth. And so what do you get from that? Suddenly caddies were no longer the drunks, but they were strategists mapping out the course, doing intense mathematical equations so that they could tell they're, they're, they're the golfer they were carrying the bag for exactly what, what club to use at which time. Suddenly, golf teachers became crucial to the advance of someone like Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods was paying out 10% of his winnings. Woods, being someone notoriously stingy with his money, paid out 10% to Steve Williams, to his, his caddy, because he knew that Williams was helping him win tournaments. And so with prosperity in anything, what you get is that more and more people get to make a career out of golf and get to specialize in specific areas in it. So on uh, new occupations, video games, it's astonishing to me that uh, thousands of people would go to Madison Square Garden to watch people, teams of people, play video games, video coaches. Tell us about uh, 
some of these new occupations. If I had said to someone in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or even the early 2000s, yeah, I'm going to be a professional video game player when I grow up for a career, people would have known right away, oh, yes, he's got a substance abuse problem because no one was going to be a video game player. But in a world in which enormous wealth is being created such that demand for entertainment grows by leaps and bounds, people discover new ways in which they want to be entertained. And so, yes, video game players are filling up Madison Square Garden and Staples Center with people who want to watch them. The prize winnings for video game players has skyrocketed into the millions of dollars. And with that, just like golf or any other profession, with it more lucrative, there's demand for specialists. And so now there, I mean, it makes me laugh to think about it, but there's now demand for video game coaches who earn over $50,000 a year. Some of the other occupations uh, tell us about, like uh, dog walkers, making a living walking dogs. Yes, some people have a passion for dogs, for pets, and people who work 30, 40 hours a week walking dogs throughout Manhattan nowadays earn in the six figures. Families are so rich today that they now hire nutritionists, but for the family pet. There are also doggy fat camps, uh, families who have a pet they love and they feel that the, the pet's packed on the pounds a little too much. They send them away to a camp to kind of fix that problem. Now, one area where uh, your thesis uh, plays out is sports and how that has generated an explosion of jobs, not in terms of number of players, but all the support groups. Absolutely. This demand for entertainment around the country means that football coaching is increasingly career, a reasonable career well down to the high school level. Let's look at Boise State, hardly a major college. Its annual budget just for its football assistance is $2 million a year. The average assistant coach in the SEC earns over $400,000 a year. Okay, so that's the top conference, but across basically Division One in college, the average assistant earns $253,000 a year. And some will say, okay, that's still pretty elite. Well, let's go down to the, let's go down to the high school level. In the Houston Metroplex alone, there are at least 14 different high school coaches who earn over $100,000 a year. In the state of Georgia alone, the number is, in the book, I describe it as 23 coaches in the state of Georgia. It's now 36 high school coaches just in the Peach State who earn over $100,000 a year. Dabo Sweeney, the, the brilliant head coach for Clemson, yeah, sure, he earns in the millions. He's got a staff of 55 specialists who focus every day on improving the Clemson football team. Elaborate, if you could, on uh, the, uh, the what you might call the ecosystem around sports. All the professions, all the occupations that have risen up just to serve the people on the field. Not too many years ago, n none of the NFL teams had a nutritionist. Now they all have nutritionists on staff, full-time, making sure that they're eating the right things. You look at, uh, at the New England Patriots, uh, they brought no less than three sleep coaches. Imagine that, sleep coaches, uh, personal trainers. Strength coach used to be some, some sort of vague concept that some schools had and some didn't. Now they're incredibly highly paid. Um, Andre Agassi employs, employed a strings coach, someone he flew around the world just to string his rackets. On uh, football, before we leave sports, uh, you've made the point, and it's true of every 
sport, you said athleticism is not enough, that you have to have a passion for it, and that what you have to go through to be in a top college football player, to be a top college football player, is as much as you said earlier, cerebral, brains as much as a brawn. Yeah, without question, this we are talking about cerebral pursuits. Uh, it, it's it's probably very realistic for me to say that if Jameis Winston, Michael Vick, uh, Tony Romo, Marcus Mariota, and Tom Brady wanted to talk policy with you and me, that we would be the smartest ones in the room by far. I have no question about that. But if you and I presume to talk football with those five, they would very quickly render us stupid acting and stupid looking for, given our utter inability to understand what is a highly technical sport. Um, let's not forget that quarterbacks are memorizing playbooks that are as thick as the yellow pages, thick as phone books, and they're memorizing them in split-second fashion because it, that's what they must do. They must memorize all this while having 300-plus pound defenders coming at them, basically trying to injure them. Yet they have this endless knowledge. And so my question is, we don't criticize business majors for focusing all their efforts on finance classes to learn a discipline because they want to make a career out of it. But we, but we criticize football players who have rated a scholarship that costs hundreds of thousands, maybe a million dollars over the time that they're at school. We say, oh, no focus your energies elsewhere, learn another discipline. Well, why? Most business majors won't get a job at Goldman Sachs, let alone interview there. Why are we criticizing football players for focusing all their energy on learning something incredibly cerebral that can lead to a very high-paying job once, once they're out of college? And high-paying job is not just on the NFL field. But uh, some companies have discovered that the discipline you need for athletics is transferable to uh, other pursuits. Oh, without qu I'm so glad that you, you, you brought that up because it, it's important. There's, there are so many angles to this story. And, and I ask when, I, when I'm talking about the book, what would be more interesting to a potential employer? That you got an A in, in business class at Alabama or you're four years playing for Nick Saban? If you're at Stanford, what's more appealing to uh, there that you spent more time in the film room and got an interception against Cal or that you got an A in history? Um, most of us spend our college career trying to figure out ways, trying to make connections with potential uh, um, alums as a way of getting a job once we're out of college. Okay, well, so the most accomplished alums of any school generally support the football team. Yet we're telling the football players don't spend your time on this discipline that we're paying, we're giving you an enormous scholarship to do and that the top donors highly venerate. Focus your energies elsewhere. What could set you better up for a career after college, whether you play football, coach it, or want to get into sales, than having been on the football team focusing all your energies on that? Why are we telling people to de-emphasize what elevates their unique brilliance? Now, in terms of uh, professions that uh, prosperity makes possible, uh, sports is one of them. But one of the ones that really blew my mind, since I always drink uh, coffee, is uh, describe a couple of these experts you came across that make a cup of brew that makes Starbucks look like a penny ante stuff, 40 bucks a 
cup. Describe that. What, what, what's going on here? <laughs> this is yet another thing you get from prosperity is that people, their, their, their wants and needs become specialized such that jobs become specialized and people for whom coffee is fascinating can make a career out of it. I, I think that's such a wonderful thing. I'd like to add to this that this wasn't in my book, but in the New York Times, they interviewed the cop, the top baguette maker in Paris. And this guy was so proud of himself. He said, what I do each day is artistry. I'm a magician. He's a baguette maker who views himself as a magician. This is what you get is the, with prosperity is that more and more people get up and, and go to work and they get to do something that they're endlessly proud of and paid well for doing it. Now, one of the things uh, is big in all of our lives, and you have some unique views on this, is education. Um, and uh, there's education you get in the schools, but uh, you also make the point that work is the, probably the greatest teacher, and that a lot of the things we think we need to know to pursue a career uh, may not be so. Uh, start, let's start with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. How many members of those two extraordinary bands, as we once called them, could read a note of music? Uh, exactly zero. And let's add Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys to it. Never could read a note of music, but viewed as one of the great musicians of all time. And so the answer is just economic freedom, the freedom to learn what it is that elevates you, because that's the greatest education of all. Let's not forget that, that China has experienced amazing economic growth with a population that's largely uneducated. Same with South Korea. It was one of the most illiterate nations in the world in the second half of the 20th century, but it became one of the richest nations in the world with freedom. Freedom is what matters. Education is an effect of economic freedom. Rich countries have lots of people getting education. I'm not against it, but for the work of the future, there's no way that a professor is going to be able to train people for work that's constantly changing, that's becoming more and more specialized on a daily basis. As you say, you can't predict the jobs of tomorrow. So, uh, but you also say in the book, I don't know whether you did this just to uh, have some shred of respectability, you said uh, it, it, people should go to college, or certain, some people should go to college. You didn't say no one should go to college. No, I think I think college is a wonderful thing. I, I think people should go. I just think that they shouldn't – don't go because you think you're going to learn a trade or profession. There's lots of reasons to go to college, to read lots of good books, to meet interesting people, to make connections. Um, my strong sense is that, the, is that as the U.S. grows more and more prosperous, and that's where I think we're heading because of robots and because of all this automation, we're going to the richest country in the world is on the verge of becoming exponentially richer than it already is. And my sense is that with that, we're going to see colleges become fancier and fancier and more and more people getting, the, getting to experience the joy of going away for four years. But I don't think it's ever – I think people should temper their enthusiasm. Don't think you're going there to learn a trade. In terms of uh, what happens when we have a prosperous economy, uh, people, again, they always say the middle class is Philistine. But you pointed out in your book the biggest seller of French wines in the world is 
Costco. <laughs> the most powerful sommelier in the world is Costco's wine buyer. Is that not the, don't you love this country and don't you love this world? <laughs> and it's a reminder that yes, thank goodness for the rich. They do so, they, they test out the drugs that ultimately save our lives. They buy the phones, the computers um, at nosebleed prices such that they sends a signal to entrepreneurs to mass produce them. And yes, the rich experiment with high-end things like wine and that they do ultimately is a preview to what we'll all enjoy in the future. Isn't it fun that people can make remunerative careers out of their love of wine today. Wine goes completely over my head, but people can make careers out of it just given the demand in the U.S. For, among people for good wines to drink. So uh, you just touched on something you emphasize in the book. Uh, you call them early adapters, that uh, people who pioneer seemingly paying insane prices for something uh, make it possible for us uh, 10 years from now to buy them for a few bucks. Yes, the, the rich merely, their purchasing habits, their ability to buy private jets for enormous amounts, to buy computers, cell phones, um, in the early days just creates a need or a, de a desire in society more broadly and entrepreneurs look at that and they mass produce it. And so for the young people listening um, to this podcast, I've got good news for you. What do the rich enjoy kind of exclusive to the rest of us, uh, much to my chagrin? Um, they fly on private jets, whereas I have to deal with a TSA. And that's the surest sign that for the young people, within 10, 15 years, private flight's going to be very common. Within 30, 40 years, it's just going to be the norm among people. And the reason we know that is that it's, it's always been that way. Um, I remember shopping um, at Christmas time in Los Angeles in the late 80s and seeing someone with a brick-sized cell phone and looking on in awe as in who is that movie producer? Well, look, we all have them today. Computers, of course, used to cost over a million dollars. Michael Dell got rich mass producing them. Consider how much smaller our economy today would be without the mobile phone without the computer, without the, the automobile. And so the rich buying habits as venture buyers, it causes society to progress in, in, in economically in ways that are unfathomable. And another thing to point out is that the rich aren't a stationary group. No, of course not. And what shows that more than the annual Forbes 400? Um, you would know the statistics better than I, but I remember from a few years ago, that from the, the original Forbes 400 in 1982, by I think this was 2008, 2010, there were only um, 32 members left. And I think that number is probably quite a bit lower today with the death, the recent, I think in the last year or so of, of a Rockefeller, that number continues to fall. The team picture in a society like ours of the rich is constantly, constantly changing. I wish I could be around to see how people are working in the future, and it's all going to change because of all this wealth that's being created. Well, the thing is, even though we would be in awe of what's coming, uh, people get used to it very quickly to the point now where with your handheld, if you place a call to Outer Mongolia and it takes more than six seconds, you say, what a piece of crap. You know, you just assume that uh, you, you become outraged when uh, these uh, once exotic things don't work instantly, always. 
<laughs> Isn't it fascinating to think that in the 1930s, um, it was, I believe the airline was Airways Limited. They bragged about a flight <laughs> that would get, take you from New York to Los Angeles that took 48 hours because see the one prior to that was New York to Columbus, Ohio by plane, no, by train, and then from Columbus, Ohio, all the way down to New Mexico by plane, and then another flight. So it took days to get from New York to Los Angeles. Now we're mad if a six-hour flight takes seven. John, wish we could talk to you more, but uh, thank you very much. John Tamney, political economy editor at Forbes.com, editor of Real Clear Politics, director of Center for Economic Freedom, and uh, you, you may be the wave of the future, a portfolio of jobs. I think I am, and let me just say, consider me for a second. I get to talk to my lifelong hero as part of what I do, and, and you, Steve Forbes, but consider also what I do. I am literally paid to read. That's how I make my living. Have you ever heard of a greater triumph of capitalism that more and more of us get up and we are informed as a way of earning a living. It's such a happy, happy world, and it's going to get better and better all the time. You couldn't have done my job not too long ago. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. And now for my reads for the week. First article by James Grant appeared in the Wall Street Journal. The title is, The Fed Could Use a Golden Rule. The Fed should abandon the era of government bailouts and too big to fail. That's what happens with the Fed's misbegotten policies, especially the policy of an unstable dollar. Grant's piece couldn't be more timely, as the Fed's going to be meeting in the next couple of weeks. The second article is from somebody you've just heard from, John Tamney. It's called Meet El Salvador. Slayer of Keynesian and Monetary Mysticism on Forbes.com. Tamney makes the point here using the example of remittances of 1.4 million people from El Salvador living in the U.S. sending $5 billion a year to their small country, that the real way you get economic growth is through production. And in El Salvador, they don't produce very much. So this whole Keynesian idea that you can spend your way to prosperity well, you got to produce first in order to get the resources to spend. Well, El Salvadoran immigrants are doing it. And on monetary mysticism, monetarists say, if the government prints money, that'll stimulate the economy. No, money represents production. And again, these immigrants are producing here in the United States, which means consumption in El Salvador. Good piece to take a look at. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.